This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So uh, first Jane is going to talk about her, her talk, of course, and then we're going to have Q&A on, uh, uh, for Jane. And then after that, I will talk about Suzuki Roshi. Uh, my talk, that's my talk, and I hope everybody is is here, and we'll ask questions, and and then I, and then we'll have Q and A for that. Jane will join that part, and uh, hopefully Reb and other people who have met Suzuki Yoshi will be able to uh, help us too. So, uh, so Jane first. Okay. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, this is uh, Kogetsu. Um, uh, we're having some comments from the chat to. Uh, to the volumes a little bit low from your mic again. So might need to uh, just speak a little louder if you can. Okay. Thank you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. I'll see if anybody um, from the chat, there is one person. Okay. Let's go from there. Okay. Uh, today I'd like to talk, I'm gonna read part of mine and talk for part of it. So. Uh, if you do have any questions before I even finish, I, I'm open to answering at that point if I can. So uh, please let it be as informal as you wish it to be. Um, I'd like to talk about the chant, the rogue chant, which has always meant a great deal to me. And the first time I heard it, I was really amazed to hear it. So uh, it's one of those things that when you hear something very beautiful, uh, all of your body tingles with it. And it's hard to say, it's almost like all of you is listening to it. So um, I think it's one of the things that all Zen students share in common. And although we have differences of words and differences of the times that we say it, for example, in some groups, they say it at the very beginning of the sitting time, some in the middle and some like us at the very end. So, um, all these things are different, but the meaning of the same rogue chant, the meaning of the rogue chant is exactly the same. It's an honoring of this practice that we all share together. So we chanted in the morning and then we put on Roxu's and cases, if you have them. And uh, we, um, I think we have a connection like a string of beads to every Zendo just by this simple act of chanting a little four line gata. We chant together and uh, we connect through those things, through those simple things. So the first time I heard the Heart Sutra, I was in Sokoji Temple and uh, I had never heard it before. I was just very new to the practice. And uh, when everyone began to chant the words, I had this curious physical reaction of the hair felt like it was standing up on the back of my neck. And I tingled all over as if someone had thrown cold water on me. So that was my first experience to hear everyone standing and chanting this Heart Sutra. And all of my body felt like I was chanting it with them. So before the chanting had begun, I was standing there debating about whether we should do all the nine bows or not, and whether it was really necessary to bow to the floor and why we had to bow all the way to the floor. This was my first experience with it. 
And so I was debating to myself and then they started to chant. Everyone in the room was chanting and it, my debate stopped. I found myself listening with this pinpoint concentration from beginning to end. And all I did was marvel at how beautiful this chant was. And then the first time I heard the, the uh, rogue chant, I had a similar situation. Again, it made the feeling of the hair standing up on my head as if this was a marvelous saying, a marvelous thing. So I like it very much because through the chanting of it every day, we affirm our practice, not just our individual practice, but our practice together. And I, the words were amazing to me and I felt as if I understood them, but if I ever tried to explain them, I couldn't begin to, I couldn't begin to put into words what the sutra or the gata meant to me. And even to this day, I still feel that I'm studying the words of both the robe chant and the Heart Sutra, because I think it's like a lifelong study that will never stop. So uh, I'll probably continue the rest of my life. When I first wrote this, I wrote, I, I will probably continue this throughout my life. And then I looked at it afterwards and thought, wait a minute, I'm 84. <laughs> I have to, I have to uh, edit that a little bit <laughs> for the rest of my life. I, at the time, I was chanting this Heart Sutra and uh, the robe chant. Uh, I didn't understand that uh, it had such power over us when we chanted. I didn't understand that just saying the words brought the sutra into life through us. And that was a complete misunderstanding, even though I my body tingled with it. I knew something was happening when I was chanting. And when I pay attention to it, I still feel that wondrous feeling of, this is a marvelous chant. These are marvelous words. And yet, if I had to put them into distinct words, I would still stumble over various ones here and there. Anyway, I think that with a long time of chanting, the words actually become our flesh and blood and they and we don't even notice it. We hardly notice it, but we keep on chanting and we begin to actualize the words of this chant in the smallest acts that we do, like holding our teacup or coffee cup or smelling, just smelling the aroma of food or just sitting outside on a bench or somewhere, walking somewhere, sweeping, talking to anybody. We start putting the words of this chant into actuality we begin to live it and we don't even notice it at the time but other people notice it when they meet us they tell us you seem different or you feel different and i think it's because they sense the living quality that happens with a chant a small one of just four lines that we chant every day we chant the words with body speech and mind and i think our body actually understands the words better than our mind does and i think it does it just because it breathes and is present every minute and so there's no need to even think about the words because when we chant them they're already inseparable from us if we've been chanting them even for like a day 
they become inseparable from our lives. And uh, we don't have to really ponder on the words because our body begins to study them when we begin to chant them. We distill these words into body and mind with, with our chanting every day. And um, it's actualized in our lives through the simple acts of eating, shopping, cleaning, talking, friendships, or such. I think the words of the chant are very beautiful. Like Musendos, we do a mixture of Japanese and English. We say, Daizai Geida Apuku, Muso Fukuden Ne, Ibu Nyorai Kyo, Kodo Shoshujo. And we also say, Great Robe of Liberation, Field Far Beyond Form and Emptiness, Wearing the Tathagata's Teaching, Saving All Beings. Those are big words and their meaning is profound. And we can't guess them with our thoughts because the thoughts can't even begin to go into the meaning of them. But our body can. And the more we chant them, the more our body will bring them to the fore, the more our body will begin to live them. So whatever differences we say in this chant, the meaning comes through and is very beautiful. People don't understand why it has that beauty, but it does. So we chant with body, speech, and mind. And we work for the benefit of all beings. That's what we chant. So we say, field far beyond form and emptiness, wearing the Tathagata's teaching, saving all beings. And we mean this teaching of liberation is beyond any conditioned thought. And wearing this teaching in the form of a robe, a raksu, I will learn with body, speech, and mind the meaning of Buddha's teaching and live my life for the benefit of all beings. This robe that we've made, stitch by stitch, as we chanted, I take refuge in Buddha, or Namukie Butsu, is our practice, and it is embodied in cloth. It is a small thing, either a, a, a raksu or an okesa, such as we wear, is embodied in cloth. And we hold it with respect, and we wear it with devotion. Field far beyond form and emptiness, or beyond conditioned thought, that is, silence. Silence is beyond thought. If we're immersed in thought, thought appears to us to be existence. Experiences like aversion or desire seem to be the experience itself. But if we look at aversion and desire from the perspective of silence, we can see that the experience itself comes before the emotional connection. We can see that we are being moved by something we haven't really looked at or being or paid attention to. So if we experience uh, any kind of activity and we feel aversion to it or anger at it or something, we look first very carefully and see that the action came before the arising of anger or aversion to it. So we can understand then that we've clothed the experience in an appealing or an appalling way in order that we can manage it. Once we have a label on it, then we can put it wherever we choose to put it, inside, outside, anywhere, 
and enclosed it, enclosed it in some form that makes us in charge. And uh, to leave the experience unclothed with emotion then leaves us open to touch that experience directly without evasion or deceit. And the experiences we touch directly also become our flesh and blood. So it's better not to be deceived when thinking, with thinking, when we become immersed in our experiences. It's better to meet them with our eyes open, always. The last line, wearing the Tathagata's teaching, saving all beings, is like saying, wearing the embodiment of Buddha's profound teaching of liberation, this robe, I pledge my life to helping others. So this pledge is to lift one's life in service to others. This doesn't mean to do special work of helping special people in special times. It means to help everyone, those we like, those we don't like, those we think deserve our help, those we think don't deserve our help. We help everyone and we don't put up any walls that say this group is okay, this group is not okay. This teaching is okay, that teaching is not okay. We open the doors, throw them wide open and say, everyone is welcome. This teaching is for everyone. This service in our hearts is for everyone. So we offer in that case, a genuine relationship with whoever is with us, whoever we meet, whoever we talk to, even on the telephone, anywhere, whoever we meet, we offer direct relationship, honest relationship. And we offer this genuine relationship with whoever it is we meet, whether we like them or not, whether we admire them or not, whether we think they're up very high religious status up in our minds, like, you know, the Pope, or whatever, we offer exactly the same to everybody. And to meet the experience of others in direct relationship is to meet them in the midst of silence of our thinking mind, rather than pouring out one condition response after another, or mentally running through ideas and expectations. To change the way we meet anyone can change our whole being at the same time. Since without the incessant thinking mind that we have, without that thinking mind to build on when we're talking to others, we can relax instead into a quieter mind. And this leaves space open for the other to change as they wish. Everything slows down. Meeting others without getting lost in their expectations or ideas about us is like going through a forest without getting lost in the trees. We can appreciate what we meet, but we pass them by without forgetting our direction. Thank you. Do you have any questions at all? Please feel free to uh, raise your virtual hand. Uh, the function is under the reactions 
button on the bottom toolbar of your Zoom window. It's the smiley face with the plus sign. And if you click on that, there's a raise hand button. You can also send um, me, the host, um, a direct chat and I can pose the question for you. And I can also scan the video feeds to see if anybody's waving their actual hand. Well, I see three hands waving here. Mm -hmm. uh, yep, so I see three virtual hands at the moment. We'll start there. Uh, looks like we have an offering from Severine. Hi, Jane. This was just wonderful. Great to see you guys. That was a wonderful talk. Uh, I, I have, you know, a, a story I just heard, which I had never heard before. Um, maybe some of you know it. Of course, there's the famous story where a student, I just found out it was Mel, asked Suzuki Roshi, what's the meaning of the rope chant? And Kadgeri went to look through something and Suzuki just said, love, which is so beautiful and which I've loved forever. And I think it was Hosan said, there was someone approached a Buddhist scholar about this and he laughed and he says, you know, in Japanese, the L and the R are kind of indistinguishable. Japanese people have a lot of trouble um, you know, say, saying them clearly, and that the V and the B are in a similar situation, so that Mel heard Suzuki Roshi say the word love, but it's possible that Suzuki Roshi wow. intended to say the word robe. And, <laughs> and so I just think that's so cute. So. Well, I, I would agree with the word love because that's definitely what it is about, you know, is profound compassion that we draw up and from the interior and let it pour out to everywhere. So that's, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if Mel, Mel, if Mel, quote unquote, misunderstood, he utterly understood, of course. He got the deeper question. Yes, he did. But the robe is also true. The robe is the embodiment of love. Right. It's the embodiment of love and compassion of how we touch every person, everyone, without any kind of discrimination. But yes, I, so I would, either one is fine. Yeah, they are the same thing. The robe of love. That's the robe love no distinction yeah exactly <laughs> thank you great to see you <laughs> good to see you yes <laughs> looks like our next offering is from carol okay hello carol um jane it's good to see you again this is a personal offering um after my, Galen helped me with my first strakasu at Tassajara, which sadly mysteriously vanished into the ether at one point. And you helped me with my second one. We sewed it at your lovely home near LA. Oh, and yeah. I'm very, very grateful for your help, which Reb then later wrote on. So it was, was wonderful that I was able to accomplish that while living in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, and then again, uh, so what you just said about either one is fine, about the robe and love. Um, at, a, at, a, at a Zen center where I lived for a long time, and the second line uh, of the robe chant is said, um, a formless field of benefaction. 
which also has a lovely feeling to it. And it, sure, to me, it is exactly the same thing as a field far beyond form and emptiness. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you again. It's lovely to see you and Peter again today. Good to see you, yes. <laughs> thank you. Our uh, next offering is from Terry. Hello, Terry. Hi. Um, I, I just, I, I was deeply moved by what you said. I think my heart opened when you talked about your feelings in hearing things for the first time. And I, it was just very moving and I wanted to thank you. Oh, you're welcome. That looks like it might be it for the questions for people with their virtual hands raised. I'm going to look through the video feeds and just see if anybody's waving or wants to raise their hand hand. No, not right now. I think we can pass it over to Peter. Okay. Thank you, everybody. This is a very quick, very simple pass. Oh, doesn't work that way. You take that. Take this one for your glass. That's it. tell you about Suzuki Roshi. Uh, I think I'll start with the story first. This is my favorite Suzuki Roshi story, but mostly I'm going to talk about his life before he came to San Francisco. Uh, but I was his Jisha. Jane, Jane had been his Jisha beforehand. You all know what a Jisha is, uh, mostly I think. Someone uh, who or some uh, who um, uh, takes care of, of well, hold, carrying the incense uh, but also being the personal attendant uh, during the time that you're Jisha. It's a wonderful job, and it's kind of like a lifetime experience for people who are able to have that one in it with any teacher, actually, because you really feel close to the teacher. It is, so I was a Jisha, and, you know, we at Tassajara, as many of you have been there, uh, probably we get up early. They got up early, uh, and... Um, what, so I had to, I'd go over and I'd like there was a stove and now in his cabin which is now the um, uh, uh, Kaisando but that was Sugiroshi's cabin or and uh, he had a, he had a stove in there and the Jisha would light the stove and make some tea and and then uh, he'd get ready and then you'd you know walk over to the Zendo which is you know where, where the kitchen is now behind the kitchen so one day I walked in and he said. You have a cold. I said, yeah, I, I, I don't feel so well. He said, sit down. This is unusual for the me to be sitting down. He should be sitting down. But okay, I'll sit down. And then he, uh, he put a bowl, a small bowl, on top of his stove, because the stove you know, was the kind of like, a, not a kerosene stove, but it was an actual wood stove. Um, and then he brought out a bottle of sake. Now, Sukiboshi didn't drink. He was well known 
not not just because he thought it was bad for you. He didn't like it. And the Japanese people often say, well, you're either a sake person, you see a sake in America, a sake, sake person, or you're a sweets person. And he was a sweets person. And I'll tell you a little story about that in a minute. Anyway, so he took the sake and he put it in the bowl, right? And, uh, uh, and then uh, and he, as it was heating, then he went over and he also had, for some reason, some raw eggs. Both, I was also surprised by that too. And he took out a raw egg and he broke it into the sake. And then he had a little spoon or something and he turned it around and around and around and around and around and around and it was hot. And he said, okay, drink this. And uh, I drank it pretty quickly. It's about eight ounces perhaps. Uh, and uh, he said, okay, go back to bed. And my Jisha responsibility for the day was being in bed. And by the time night came, I was well. So that's my, my, that's my favorite story, at least today's favorite story. But I'm going to tell you about his life. And um, I'll read a little bit towards the end my, my impression. But before that, it's going to, going to be about his life. And, I won't be seeing you, I'll, I'll be seeing my notes. Um, when Suzuki Roshi, when I, I was the Windbell editor, we were a small group back then. And uh, so I, I wanted to write an article about Suzuki Roshi's life before Zen Center. And so uh, I asked him uh, if I could do an interview. And that interview ended up taking several hours. Um, he was not very happy with doing it, but he prepared or mostly the preparation was by Chino at that time, Sensei. Okay. Uh, and, and I sat down and I asked him questions. Um, and so uh, that, that became one of the, one of the, one of the resources uh, for David Chadwick's, of course, wonderful Crooked Cucumber, uh, which I went back to look at in preparation for this talk today. And it was uh, quite wonderful more than I remembered. It really was accurate and good. But anyway, that, that so therefore, what I'm talking about today, part of the things you will have heard, if you or read, if you were, if you have read Pricky Cucumber, if you haven't, I certainly recommend it. It's a, it's a very, very nice read. And there's some sad parts in it too. Um, but anyway, um, but when I sat down to talk to him, and, and we talked, at one point he said to me, he really didn't want to do this, but I was pushy. And, and I was the editor, you know, and I was a reporter, as it were. Uh, and he said, if, uh, if, my under, if, if my life is understood in this way, all will be lost. My life is understood in this way, all will be lost. So take that into consideration when you hear what I'm saying right now, because this is not Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi is what Jane was talking about. But anyway, uh, I'm going to tell you his story, and particularly about with respect to uh, when uh, he um, uh, came to the U.S. and why he came. So uh, during the, in the we we have a feeling of we may not anymore, but the feeling was back when I was a student. Uh, was that it was a Buddhist country. 
but in fact, politically, it is stopping a Buddhist country um, in the 1860s or 1850s, mostly, I guess, 1860s. Uh, the the uh, government had been forced to uh, open up their uh, their their ports, which had been closed for 400 years, to to trade. In fact, by the U.S. Navy, uh, and uh, they were afraid, and they noticed how many people, or they knew how many countries had been colonized uh, uh, by uh, um, uh, the Western countries uh, around all you know all of. Uh, Southeast Asia, Philippines, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he, um, they were afraid of that. So they thought the best thing to do is to help, is to make them understand us so they won't think of us as outsiders. And so therefore they noticed that they were all, were, they all were Christians. And at that point, other than the U.S., they mostly were kingdoms. The Japanese had been run by for 400 years uh, by, uh, by, by a, a military family, the Shogun, it's called Shogun to us, uh, and they'd be modernized, but they, and they'd made a, but they made a, a much bigger deal of it, of making Shinto be similar to Christianity on the surface. It never was, but on the surface, and they put down Buddhism. They, they, and they had a, a, a government slogan to destroy Buddhism. Fifty years later, Suzuki Roshi was was still very much 40, 50 years. He was born in 1904, influenced by this. Uh, and when he was young, the kids, he, he lived in a te temple family. His parents, his father was a, was a priest. His mother was a, uh, the, uh, the wife of the temple, uh, which is a very important task. And uh, and they were very poor, because all the all the land was taken away from them by the government and actually given to, given to the Shinto, and so his poor father, who was you know had to raise pigs to support them, uh, and he when he went to school, but he made him shave his head, and the students would rub his hair and you know and they were they would criticize Buddhism, and they also criticized his his clothes. And at that point, Sukhumoshi had a very strong feeling about how Buddhism wasn't appreciated. And he promised to himself, kind of, that he was going to, he was going to, this was going to be his life project. It wasn't quite that strong, but he had that feeling as a young man. And so when he turned 13, uh, he decided that his that he was going to be a monk and that his father was too easy on him. He loved him too much and he could not practice in his temple. So he asked permission and was able to go to uh, a one of his father's disciples and live in his temple. It was very, very strict. He stopped going to school. He just this is when he had just finished grammar school. Uh, and there were nine, eight other students there, all of them, you know, older, but still high school students, probably. And uh, a year later, only Suzuki Roshi was left because it was so difficult. But he, and he said, you know, he maybe, if he hadn't have been afraid of telling his parents that he's going to stay there, he probably would have gone home. But he didn't. There are some nice stories from this time, uh, a few only, actually. Uh, one story uh, is that um, uh, one time, uh, 
Oh, yes. So one time, you know, they everything in the wintertime in the temple is very, very simple food. Um, not like, I mean, even Tassahara is quite, quite elaborate compared to a Japanese temple. You know, breakfast is always the same. Lunch is always the same. Dinner is, they change one dish and then it's the same. So every meal is the same, except there's no miso soup in the morning, just two bowls. So the students were, of course, hungry. Uh, uh, but anyway, they, in wintertime, they eat, ate just pickles. Uh, and one time they had a batch of daikon, you know, daikon pickles that hadn't been salted enough and they were rotten. But the teacher insisted that they eat the pickles. So every day they'd have to get down these literally rotten pickles. I don't know what, how to do it. They're rotten, but they hadn't, they, they were spoiled. And after several days, the students got really, they just couldn't believe, they just were just really, and they, at, at late at night, they waited until the teacher was asleep. They all lived in the same temple, not the same room with the teacher, but the same temple. Uh, and they went out into the garden they took the pickles from the, wherever they were stored and they buried them. And they were very pleased with themselves. My God, we got rid of those pickles. Uh, and then they went to Zazen the next morning. And then at lunch the next day, when food was served, oh my goodness, there were the pickles again. The teacher had found the pickles in the garden and brought them back. And uh, so uh, the um, uh, so the students, however, got up another night, and they boiled the pickles. And they and they served those pickles the next day, that daikon boiled daikon now, and the teacher said, "Wow, what have you done? How how did you make the daikon this way?" Uh, of course, he knew what had happened to the pickles, but and they all they all they all ate that. Anyway, Sukiro should live there until he would, but he, he in, in, in Japan, a lot, much like the U.S. actually, in some cases now, uh, you had to take an exam to go to the next level or to see where you could go in the next level, which high school you could, middle school in his case. And uh, he failed the exam because he wasn't studying. He actually was in middle school and he failed the exam for the high school. And so his parents uh, got very upset and they came and brought him home so he would get educated. Uh, and when he was in high school, uh, his favorite subject, of course, was English. Uh, then he uh, went to the university. He went to the uh, uh, Buddhist, the uh, Soto Zen University, Komuzawa University. Um, and he also studied English there. And his English teacher, uh, and he had a conversation teacher. Jane and I were conversation teachers in in Japan, so we kind of understand about about how she how she was. She was a very unique woman. Her father had been a, was an admiral in the British Navy. She gotten a job as a as a high, as a conversation teacher um, uh, in northern in northern China, and then uh, she lost her job. She was a, and then she got the job also as that that was for high school. Menchie got the job teaching English to the to the last emperor and his wife. He actually was not interested, but his wife was, and she taught there for a couple of years. And then the Japanese in, uh, and then 
um, uh, she she somehow lost the job, uh, and uh, through the person that got her that had gotten her job, which was the Japanese ambassador uh, to uh, to China, um, she got to come to the, she she moved uh, to uh, Tokyo, uh, and became the uh, tutor for the emperor and empress of China of uh, of Japan, and also for several universities, and one was one Sukiro she was in. And he was, uh, and he goes into class as once a week only. You have a class first in the, in the Japanese universities, and um, one day he happened to realize that where where she he was near where she lived, and it was very hot. And he went, and he'd heard that when you went there, she would serve you cold watermelon. Uh, and uh, and once he got in the door, and he sat down, and he did get watermelon. Uh, uh, and uh, she asked him to become her third houseboy. She had uh, students who shopped for her, but and uh, so he did that, and they became close friends. And he and the other two boys disappeared. They're not in their eighteen, nineteen. Sukiyoshi, of course, got to the university when he was started because of his late high school entrance. He got there when he was twenty-two or twenty-one. I think university was five years back then, and he and so therefore he moved in with Mrs. Ransom, Miss Ransom, not Mrs. at all. I'll think, uh, Miss Ransom. She's a very difficult lady, uh, but he got along with her, uh, and uh, but she had and there are more stories there, but I'm going to probably not tell those right now. But they're in the book. These stories are in the book. Uh, she told these stories to the to to the. At various times during 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 lectures too, but the most important story is she had a Buddha, uh, probably a, a Buddha about uh, about maybe as a little taller than a foot, but a very that was given to her by the Empress of China, and she put the, she put it in the Tokonomo that in the main guest room uh, for a Japanese house. There's a little alcove where they put scrolls things like that. But she put the Buddha in one part of the alcove, and then she put her shoes in the other. Now, of course, in Japan, you put your shoes before you literally step it up into the house. But she didn't do that. She put her shoes next to the Buddha. Sukiyoshi was quite dis distressed by that, but he didn't say anything. But one day, when he was having tea with her during the afternoon, he took his tea cup and he put it in front of the Buddha. And she didn't say anything. But when guests would come, and he kept doing it day after day, he'd put tea in front of the Buddha. And uh, and the guests would come, and the guests would sometimes put matches in the in, in the hands of the Buddha, sometimes uh, uh, even ashes from their cigarettes. But he kept cleaning it and putting tea out every morning. And, and he called this it was the start of a of, of a cold war with Mrs. Ransom, and it went on for a bit and how long? For several weeks, certainly. And finally, one day, she said to him, "Why do you believe in that stuff? Why do you put Why do you put tea there? What is that's kind of a what's what is that? That's adultery. I mean, I mean, uh, not adultery. Uh, 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 believing in idols, uh, adultery." And he had prepared. He'd he he made a he'd made a speech. And the speech was about 
the um, uh, the uh, our three bodies of Buddha, and he'd had his teachers help him write the English for it, and he gave her the speech, and she was amazed, and she said, "I had no idea." And from that time, uh, one day he noticed rather quickly her shoes were gone. And time went past, and she started doing zazen with him. And then they went out, and they bought uh, tea, not tea, they bought, uh, pardon me, an uh, incense bowl, and they bought incense. And, uh, and then fun, and then she began to study, remember, he was in a Buddhist university, and they had many teachers who could speak English also, professors, and she learned about Buddhism from them as well, as well as from Suzuki Roshi. So in the end, she okay. she uh, she uh, she he uh, he uh, gave her he uh, uh, she, uh, she became his student. Uh, and he would go to, she would go to his home temple, Rinzoin, in the summer times. They even bought a chair for her that was that, that was just for her there. And then afterwards, uh, he went to Aheji, which is the main temple for his temple, for studying, for practicing just as a, as a monk. And she came for one month for the summer and lived in, didn't live, lived in her own room. And I think perhaps, most likely, this is, of course, back in the early 30s, uh, late 20s, that um, she may have been the first foreigner ever to study at Aheji. Uh, but then, uh, and they would send letters back and forth, but then uh, uh, she went back to China, and then she lived there again in the same situation, but then, of course, uh, then, then Japan formally attacked and took over the area, and she had to leave and go back home. But that, but he, particularly, she later said that at that time, it was there that he decided that he could that foreigners would that it would be good to teach English, good to teach uh, uh, Buddhism and zazen to other people. And so when he graduated from Aheji, uh, he came went to his teacher and said. Can I go to another place and teach? Can I go to Hokkaido, which was a new land opening up the northern islands in Japan or the US uh, and, uh, and teach Buddhism? And the teacher said, no. Uh, because he didn't, well, he didn't want to go, but he said, you cannot go until you completely rebuild this temple. And that took another 20 years. Uh, but anyway, so there, but then uh, when he, after he went back, uh, from his training, he was now in his late twenties, early late twenties, his teacher died. And then there was a, then there was a kind of struggle that went on. He didn't want to get, take over that temple, the main temple, as it were. It had a Zendo in it. It, it had been for teaching students, <coughs> but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep continu continuing to study. Uh, but he found, but it worked out that the people who wanted to take over at that temple were not were doing it for ambition. 
not to really be Buddhist priests. And so he, he stayed there, he didn't leave. Uh, and although 80 of his members left, uh, uh, and they used that as a reason to try to get him to leave, finally he said, give me three years. If the members don't come back, I will resign. But of course, they all came back. But at that period of time, he, uh, his teacher had died. He had gotten married. There's another story there. Uh, not to that wife that people who know who were in in uh, in uh, in, uh, in San Francisco with us, uh, Oksan, that was his third wife. Um, but anyway, um, let me go back to my notes here quickly. I haven't looked at them at all. Um, so this this anyway this was in the 30s, and during that time, much like. In a sense, although it's not, this is not a very fair analogy, but anyway, nationalism, to the experience we've had in the past four or five years, nationalism became very, very important in Japan. And the Japanese had a false sense, he's now, he said, a false sense of security. Uh, and, uh, and so, he he began he opened up a club called the high mountain grass ceremony the high grass mountain group for high school students and young people and they'd have guest speakers come and just talk about what was wrong with with, with nationalism with that way of thinking suzuki roshi wasn't did, didn't say he was against war but he didn't say he was against war he said that he was against the thinking. Now, of course, in Buddhism, what is the source of all problems? It's thinking. And therefore, you know, when we do zazen, we, we are either thinking unintentionally, or we are not thinking. We've studied those two states when, when we do zazen. And so therefore, he was quite interested in talking about thinking so that the so that the people around him the students he know the people who are in with around you know would not be influenced by this bad way of thinking and this became rather popular his 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 groups later on after the war some of the people who had been in the groups uh were in place in a way but not without plan without being planned that way to help out with uh, Japan changed over to the modern, to the uh, post-war age. Uh, but anyway, so um, he went on like this. Other, other people didn't didn't do that kind of thing. Most people always just supported just just supported that the way the country was going. Finally, the the army took over, and then he no longer he kept his group going, but it no longer had any real, real say. At one time uh he uh now he said david said in his book it was the soto shoe in his paper he said to me he said to in the the, the interview he said the government but one of the two they they uh, they appointed him to be the head of the country uh maybe with the soto shoe the question that's what he's what, what david said it was um to um uh, to uh, lead a lead a national group, and he and so he 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 said yes, 
and he re and he resigned the next day. This is a very Japanese way of doing things. Uh, there's a famous teacher that many of you know the name of, who is uh, EQ. And uh, EQ was very well known as a, as, as a teacher. I don't know what his generation was, but in, uh, but in feudal Japan. He, he belonged to uh, Daikokuji, uh, which, was a, which is one of the three, five big Rinzai temples. Uh, in 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 and around Kyoto, I'm not five and up, but anyway, four or five anyway, uh, and uh, and so he was so famous, they 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 made him the abbot of the temple, and he accepted, and then he resigned the next day. So that's how that that's how things were done in, in Japan. So. Uh, however, during the war, uh, it turns out that this is now 1945. Uh, bombing had, this was in the summer, uh, late spring of 1945, May. Uh, the bombing uh, had taken over Japan completely. Uh, there were airplanes in the air being, being raided. Uh, but um, in, in the era, era when when uh, Japan was controlling Manchuria, uh, many farming families had left uh, where Suzuki Roshi lived. And Shizuoka was the prefecture, but Yaizu was the name of the city. Uh, and uh, they were stranded there. And there was no, there was no teacher for them. And uh, they couldn't find anybody to go. And Suzuki Roshi, uh, with the help of one of his lay people, uh, who was involved in the government there, volunteered to go. And so they, they went across Japan over to, to cross, you had to go to Korea. Uh, and it's not very far, apparently. It's an eight hour ride, I think, on a ferry. Uh, but uh, they had to wait one week because they were, the, the bombing was taking place every day and the boat couldn't leave. But one day it stopped, uh, maybe it was Sunday or something. Anyway, and they could, he'd get in the boat and go to Korea, and he went through through you know, what we call now South and South and North Korea up up to Manchuria, and uh, he uh, went to all of you know various uh, families uh, who were Japanese families who who had settled in land that hadn't been used by the Chinese actually, uh, and were raised but they were, uh, were farmers, but they 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 hadn't had any services for their dead. Uh, and so he went around house to house, farm to farm, doing this for several weeks. Uh, and then uh, I just read this this morning, by the way, I hadn't missed it before. Uh, he um, uh, and he, he went to the main capital, uh, which is uh, which is now called well in English called Harbin, is now China, uh, and he went to Harbin. And he said he wanted to set up a a um, uh, a, 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 a temple, a, a, a sub temple of Rinzowin uh, in Manchuria. Uh, so he uh, he went north on a railway railway, looked at a lot of land, and about eighty miles from Harwin, they picked out a piece of land to build a temple on. And then they went back to the main city, but by that time it was the it was uh, it was the um, 
uh, almost, it was actually, it was one month later. So it was <clears throat> July 14th and history had changed. And, uh, and so everything was being bombed. And there are no longer, and two of the three boats that went from Korea uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to, the China, uh, to, uh, to Japan had been destroyed. Uh, just one was left at that point. And then that one also got destroyed. So there was no way to leave. You couldn't get back home. Uh, but Suzuki Roshi said, well, sell me a ticket anyway. And so then he, he actually was traveling with the son of the man who would, who would take them over there. And he had to have lead to leaving back to Japan early by airplane of all things, uh, by a apparently a smuggling airplane. Um, and so they just took the train south. And every time they went, they got back into Korea. And they stopped here and there, and they kept going. They, they get off the they get off the tr the train. They go to see if there's any boat. There was no boat. They go to the next place that had a that might have a boat. They kept doing this for at least a week. Uh, the time is not clear. And then one day they were on the train, and the, and they were they were headed for the far south is where where people where they come into. Uh, the, the second major city in South Korea. Uh, and, um, and then the conductor said, all people who are going to Japan, get off here. So they got off, so they got off the, uh, the uh, boat, after the train, we went, they walked to, to the harbor and there was no boat there. But they, but they waited a day and they waited another day and suddenly a big troop ship came in. And it was it, it was escorted by two cruisers, and it and it was there to pick up Japanese wounded, and soldiers to bring home. So Suzuki Roshi somehow or other got to talk to the captain, and he let them come on also, and so they and so they just without being bombed, they got back to a, a small port. They had to leave the boat. They couldn't. There was no dock, but they were able to harbor. And they were able to get over and get on the train, and the train from there to uh, Yaizu, which is where he was from, Shizuoka, uh, was was actually attacked three times, but they made it, and they were home. And then a, a week later, the war ended. And after the war, uh, I think I forgot to tell you that when Suzuki Roshi graduated. He got a certificate that said he was qualified uh, to teach uh, high school students. High school, in this case, was, wasn't co-ed, of course, <clears throat> and uh, to teach high school boys English, which he had never used, but he had this piece of paper, uh, and they were, and so the the they were, and the Japanese were, they were they were all extremely worried that they were going to be. I mean, he, he said when he, Sikiroshi, when he heard about the atomic bomb, most of the people weren't worried about it at all because they, they couldn't believe it. But then they said to themselves, well, if we're going to be, if we're going to die, that's a good way to go, I think. That's what Sikiroshi said uh, and, uh, uh, later. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was, uh, all the priests, most of the priests were neutral, but many of them had joined the war. And all the ones who who were who were uh, were 
therefore barred from holding any public office. Uh, and that includes Suzuki Roshi. Of course, he had had his group and he had gone to, he'd gone to Manchuria. Um, and so he, and so they were going to take away his ability to teach English. And he went down to the office and brought along, um, all of his papers, uh, and of his talks that he'd given to his group, um, and what the, and he explained what he'd been talking about and they let him keep it. Of course, he never did that, but, but he kept that. And then his life, of course, this is now after the war. I'll let you know the sad parts by reading the book yourself or talking to somebody else. Uh, but he, but he had kept working on the temple. Uh, and, uh, it, it, it was a, it was a temple that was three, his, the main building was 300 years old. Uh, and, uh, he, and so he, he, he studied all the architecture from 300 years ago to make certain that they didn't change it for modern. Everybody wanted to be modern, but he wanted to, to, to get the exact same main building. So finally, uh, the building was finished. Uh, and he complete and that in that exact year he completed his obligation. Uh, and so, uh, when he one of his friends, who was named was Niwa Roshi, who uh, came to his uh, funeral ceremony actually uh, from Japan, and who later became the uh, uh, the abbot of Aheji, uh, was in charge of international affairs for Soto Zen this is back in 1958 and he was <coughs> they were talking and socializing because they were they were they were close friends and he said and he'd already asked Suki Roshi wants to do and he said no and he asked he just and Suki Roshi said okay I'm ready to go uh and uh that is how Suzuki Roshi came to go to the U.S. Uh, now I'm going to tell you about my, and so other people you can, they can ask about, particularly Reb is there now, of course, and, uh, Steve and, uh, and, uh, Linda, uh, and, uh, I guess there are some other people too. Uh, so, um, Suzuki Roshi said, uh, at two, two, two different quotes, um, cause he really disliked the politics of Japanese temples. And he said, if I had known about when he's in the US, he said, if I had known about life here, I would have said sayonara much sooner. He was also famous, by the way, that you may be hard to believe having a bad temper and being forgetful two things. Jane was involved in his being forgetful one time. Uh, she may or may or may not tell a story when we have the have the Q and A, but he said, "I may be a quote now quote, I may be patient with American people, even before I came here. Recently, I I always think very much that way. It may have something to do with past lives." Anyway, now I'm going to I'm now I'm going to read something. I wrote something about about my understanding of, of Suzuki Roshi, 
which I hadn't thought about until I sat down to do this. Uh, so I'm going to read this now. This take another five minutes, probably. Uh, many times over the years that I have been asked what Suzuki Roshi was like, I have struggled with knowing how to answer that question. There was nothing notable about him in the ordinary sense. He was, of course, quite short, short, maybe 4'11". Uh, my mother once referred to him as that nice little man, of all things. My fallback position was to say when people asked him, I'd be in a group, uh, my fallback was to say that I felt more natural with him uh, than I ever had with anyone else. To me, he wasn't what you would call charismatic. I can't answer for Jane here. Was he charismatic? I think he was. Well, there you go. She's, you, she, you couldn't hear her, but she just said, I think he was. Uh, but for me, he wasn't. <coughs> Uh, much, much later, I heard that ordinariness is a characteristic of a mature priest. The first Dharma talk, as I told you, that he gave was about the Buddha, about the Dharmakaya, their Samugakaya, and their Nirmanakaya. Dharmakaya, roughly translated, right now, not both Dharma. Kaya means body. All of you, a lot of you know this. Uh, so Dharmakaya is the Dharma, is the body of truth or the body of Dharma or, or the body of the universe, actually. Um, Sambhogakaya is the, uh, is the, is the sometimes called the enjoyment body. It's some kind of a strange title, but it's called that. It's some, but anyway, it's, it's the, it's from the person who has practiced a long time. And anyway, and the Nirmanakaya means that, well, the ordinary human body, body. Uh, many years back, I thought I understood what they referred to. But I was puzzled by the order. I assumed that the Nirmanakaya should come first, since it was the form body. <coughs> uh, and that the Dharmakaya should be last, as that was the enlightenment body. But of course, the order that it's given in, Nirmanakaya, Samugakaya, Dharmakaya, is correct. If I use the images of, of, Toza, of, of, of Dongshan, or Tozan's five ranks, many of you know that, who is, uh, of course, the author of the Song of the uh, Jeweled Mirror Samadhi, uh, using the explanation of uh, Ross, I looked this up this morning, of Ross uh, Ballantur, a, a, uh, a um, uh, a uh, Aiken Rossi uh, member uh, from Australia. He wrote about the uh, five ranks. Uh, and he said the Dharmakaya presents, uh, represents arriving within the essential, that is, emptiness is emptiness. Samogakaya, which is a poaching from the, from the, uh, uh, from the uh, uh, contingent, uh, which is form, form is form and the nirmanakaya which is arriving at concurrence which is of course form is emptiness but actually beyond form and emptiness or which is actually the body beyond such differentiations as form is form emptiness is emptiness emptiness is form uh, so anyway it is common to refer to someone who has, has a spiritual feeling as charismatic, I told you, but I actually uh, didn't uh, 
but I recently learned uh, that actually charismatic is in a book, Soto Zen teacher's book, uh, a Japanese ma a man translation, uh, that it's, it, it is the, that actually being charismatic is the representative representative of someone who has not yet ripened in the practice. It reminds me of the difference between two Tendai priests who Jane and I were friends with in Japan. Uh, we introduced Reb to them way back when. They were Kaiho Gyo, which translate as mountain peaks, practice, uh, mountain peaks, uh, 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 Dharma practice. I'm not probably not correct. Not correct. Um, it's uh, it's walking mountain peaks practice. Uh, there's a book about them uh, in English uh, by Stevens. It's called he, he called them mountain warriors. Okay. Well, while both had big temples on Mount Hiei, where Jane and I lived near on the bottom of, it was the younger one who was quite to me anyway quite charismatic in appearance, who was the disciple, while it was the older one who outside of ceremonies always wore blue jeans with a denim shirt and who looked and acted quite ordinary, who was the teacher. Thinking about it now, the younger one seemed to act realized when the older one did not. Rather, he seemed, if anything, to have killed the Buddha. The younger one lived on top of the mountain that they walked on and did their practice on every day and, and walked everywhere. While the other lived down on the edge of Kyoto, on the edge of the mountain in Kyoto, the edge of Kyoto, and had a big car. I felt a little ill at ease with the younger one, but not with the older one. Putting it another way, the younger one seemed to have gone beyond form while the older had gone beyond form and emptiness. I think now that why Suzuki Roshi felt so ordinary is that that was who he was. There was indeed nothing special about him, no smell of enlightenment. When he did Zazen, he merely felt peaceful, he said. It wasn't that he had nothing left to attain, but that attainment wasn't the question. Suzuki Roshi was a complete person. Okay, thank you. Uh, now there's going to be a Q&A, but I want this to be a little, not quite exactly Q&A, although it, it can be that. Um, I would, I'm going to change my screen, uh, so get, get, get back to you, uh, and look at some of your pictures here. So I'm going to put it on the gallery. They're going to go gallery. There's going to be a lot of you. Only see only about less than half of you, because I'd like I'd like to have questions, of course, but I'd also like to have people who have Suzuki Roshi stories, like for example Mel here for at least Mel, but there are others here. Think I, I'm hoping to, to tell their stories. Jane may tell one too. Jane will not tell what she just said, <laughs> but I'll have to tell her story then about it. No, you won't. <laughs> you changed so much. <laughs> okay, anyway, let me see. Oh, I, well, I didn't tell the story at all. Anyway, I, uh, I've just changed to go forward to the other pictures, but I just mostly I can see faces on this picture. Okay, so any questions, please? Here's Jane. She knows these stories about Tsukiwashi completely. 
Please feel free to raise your virtual hand um, if you'd like to offer something. And I'm also looking at video feeds to see if anybody has their hand up. Oh, Jeff's there. Jeff can tell us about something about Sugiyoshi. Hi, Jeff. And Susan also, maybe. See, which Jeff would that be? Oh, uh, 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 Jeff Sherman. Okay. But he didn't have his hand up yet, but anyway, he's oh, a bit of a story. Yeah. Hi. So, I just can say, and someone else had said it before me, that he was a, a sweet man. Uh, um, I just, we just all just wanted to be a, around him. Uh, when we were there for practice period at Tassajara and we knew he was coming, there was just uh, kind of like Jane was talking about, the, the hairs on the back of your neck. It was just pretty exciting to uh, be expecting him. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know if he really is, is, you know, I don't know for sure. I can't remember if what I'm, what I might say is I actually heard him say it or I heard somebody else say, Suzuki Roshi always says, or somebody wrote about it, but um, the one thing I, I, I carry with me, um, well, a couple, a lot of things I carry, but one thing he said, you know, um, uh, we're, we're just here practicing together. Uh, it's not, you know, he's a teacher or whatever, we're practicing together. Uh, another thing I, I think he said, <laughs> um, was and I did stub my toe once uh, at Ed Brown's wedding there, but he said if you stub your toe, that's enough suffering. Um, <laughs> so I don't I don't know what to say. Uh, again, he was just uh, just nice to be around, and I I don't think I was as intimate with him as as you two certainly were, and as a lot of other people were, but, but um, I was just around him. <laughs> so um, lots of memories. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Mm -hmm. If anybody else has their hand up, oh, well, there, she's 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 uh, she's looking for us. Oh, I just want to see who else is. Oh, here we, we just we all, all we see is the name. I'm going to go. I'm going to change our, our page. We could just yeah, look. yeah, we'll, we'll look. But the mostly they're not, they're they're just on telephones, so you can't, oh, yeah. can't see. Let me see. Oh, yeah, that looks like an offering from Sam. Can, can Sam. Please. Hey, um, I wonder if Suzuki Roshi or anyone knows much information about him and his time at AAG or 
anything he may have said about his um, experience at AHG. I know there's a lot of stories and a lot of experiences um, in general, maybe. Sure, Sam. Maybe I, I, did, I, I did kind of gloss over that. Um, there are a couple of stories that um, they're, they're in David's book also, but, but I've, I think I heard the stories also when, when David heard them. Um, uh, you know, his, um, his, his, his teacher that he went to, to join when he was 13 and who died when he was 29 or 30, um, really didn't teach much. He, he, he become a priest, uh, at 30 and was, but mostly, um, was not a, an intellectual priest. He was a practice priest, uh, and a, you know, and a local priest. Uh, and, but there was a, but there was, um, uh, a famous scholar that lived in the same area as Suzuki Roshi, uh, who had been a, a disciple of the most, the man who, who reintroduced Dogen to, uh, to the modern, as it were, modern world back in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, who uh, is in a book with Suzuki Roshi uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Mel uh, 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 worked on. Um, he, his name was uh, uh, Nishi, uh, well, putting in Japanese style, uh, Nishiari, last name first, Nishiari Bokusan. And he was Nishiari Bokusan's student. And so he, and he was a scholar uh, and he loved books. And he was Suzuki Roshi's teacher after his teacher died. And he actually lived only two miles away from him in his home temple. But when he went to Eiheiji, he became his assistant. He became his jisha. So he would tell these two stories. Uh, one time, see, he was jisha, and when you you know the Japan have have you know sliding doors, uh, shoji they're called. Uh, and when you when you open the door to a room, you open the door in in front, I guess, in Now I can't remember which is which, but I'll tell a story, it doesn't really matter to us actually. So let's say one side, he opened one side uh, and, uh, and, the, and uh, the teacher said to him, no, 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 you always open it on the, on the, on the other side. And then another day he was bringing tea back to, he, he was, he was, he was uh, 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 bringing. He was. He was also going into to uh, to bring something, and he opened the door he was supposed to open, and the teacher said, "No, no, no! Don't open that door." And he couldn't understand what it was about. And he puzzled about it later. He was scolded in both cases by uh, uh, by this uh, by, by the teacher, Kichizawa Roshi, his name was. Who was the uh, who was the abbot of, I guess was the abbot of of Eheji at that time. And later, and then he realized later, oh, he had he had opened the door the second time where the guest was. And from and and, and another time uh, when he was first started serving uh, Kichizawa Roshi, uh, um, he. Um, would bring, you know, Japanese fill the teacup two thirds of the way up often. And uh, he said, no, 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 more, more. 
And he said, no, no, it's not right. More, more. So he filled it. He liked to have his green tea very strong and filled to the top of the cup. So some guests came. He had, by this point, I'm making this up part here, but let's say he knew how to open the door for the shoji. He came in and he brought the tea and he, and he served the guests tea in full cups. He said, no, 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 you can't serve guests that way. And so from this, Suzuki Roshi learned that, that there's no rules, there's circumstances. This is a very, very important teaching. There's no rules, there's only circumstances. So anyway, that's, that's, that's one story, the two different separate stories that Tsukiroshi liked, liked to tell. He liked, he liked being there very much. Uh, and his teacher came up to see him at Aheji, and he told him how much he liked it. And the teacher heard the story, said, I guess it's time for you to come home. <laughs> so he, that, that, that was the end of that. So he left Aheji. But he said, you know, when uh, later, when, when people would go back to, to, to Aheji, and they go in, you know, they were older priests now, and that it was a training practice. You know, it held, you know, a, a lot, you know, I, several hundred monks, I guess. Um, and um, when when you went back to it, he said your eyes would fill full of tears at at the feeling of Aheji. But when you're there, there's no feeling at all. Just that's that's where you are. And that's how Tashara was for us too. My eyes don't go, feel with tears when I go down, go, go into the gate of Tazahar, I'm afraid, but uh, uh, that was that's a Zuckerberg story, not mine, actually. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Your hand is up, yes, sir. There you go. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Sure. Uh, one second. Ah, hi. Uh, hi. My question was about uh, Suzuki Roshi's relationship with Shinto. And yeah. I know there was mention of how he was bullied um, for being Buddhist. And I'm curious about what his relationship in general was with Shinto. Okay. You know, it's a little, well, I have to tell you a little bit of background. Um, uh, when it, it was it was it was during the there was an emperor in, in japan then the military the shogun took over uh and they, and and because there were temples were growing all over japan uh and so they used the temples uh as partially part of the government but anyway temples were put the 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 shinto shrines were all almost all but pretty much all put into the temple property so therefore, Shinto was a part of Buddhism for quite a while, but not really. Shinto, Shinto, you know, married people. Buddhism buried people from the ordinary point of view. So I mean, no, people could not did not get married as Buddhists generally. It just was not not particularly heard of because Shinto marriage. But anyway, I don't think Suzuki Roshi. So therefore, when when um, uh, 
Uh, I heard the story of where we lived and, you know, this was the, the Tendai Monastery was on the mountain above our house and, and uh, far above our house, but, you know, our way by walking. Um, and uh, they told the story that uh, when they, they, when they gave the land, Shinto land, back to the Shinto people, that the, um, there's a famous story about the, about the man who was in charge of the temple in the big, t in this town where he lived, but it was still a, a main shrine, going up and demanding the key from the head, from the abbot of, of Tendai. And so they became, they, they, get, they became quite, quite opposite. But I don't think that Sugiroshi really had much feeling for Shinto, but I never heard him talk about it. So uh, even though they were connected, they kind of were in there. And I don't think they actually did Shinto ceremonies. I've never heard him, I, you know, uh, other other parts of Buddhism was a little, were a little closer to Shinto. Uh, but uh, so I don't, what, anybody else hear anything? Reb, what do you think about that? I also never heard Zikyoshi talk about Shinto. And there is a Shinto shrine at Rinso Inn, but I never saw anybody doing any ceremonies at the shrine. So I never heard him say anything bad or, or, or critical of, of Shinto or talk about it at all. Yeah, that's my experience. Thank you. Yes. Miriam? Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Uh, my question is uh, kind of a little different um, because I have also been in another tradition where the teacher died and I came in into that tradition after his death. And so listening to all the stories about Suzuki Roshi and his wisdom and everything, did the Zen center go through where you lost a teacher and this kind of what to do next? I mean, I think it's really difficult to lose a teacher and then also have new students come in. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I was just curious, how did that all get reconciled? Or does it ever get reconciled? Because today I hear we always go back to our root teacher, Suzuki Roshi this, Suzuki Roshi that. And for people who never met Suzuki Roshi, how, how does that get all transmitted? Because you have not just in the head, you have it in the body and the emotion, and it's a very special place. So I hope it makes sense. I'm curious. Well, of course, there are only, uh, I don't know how many people left who knew Suzuki Roshi, but uh, certainly less than 100, probably, at least who are in contact, probably even less than that. Uh, but anyway, San Francisco Zen Center had, had, had its own history, uh, and, and Suzuki Roshi appointed one person to be his Dharma heir. And just by chance, uh, because of his, you know, sudden, sudden death, not sudden death, but he, he wasn't, people thought he did to be much older. He died when he was 67. 
uh, and so that was very young. Uh, and so he didn't, he hadn't planned, you know, to, to, for that to happen. But one person had become his, his, his successor. And he told the board, this is the person that's going to be my successor. Uh, Reb was in the board, I think. Jane was in the board. I was in the board back then. And, um, uh, and we kind of fought it a little bit. But not very long, because what she said happened. But then, then Jane and I were there for a year, working with Zen Center. And then we were sent to Zen Center on a scholarship uh, for six months, but we jumped ship to Japan. To Japan. And so we don't know the we only know we know the history, of course, but it was very different. But then, but yet, but Zen Center did have that same problem when that abbot had a lot of trouble in the abbot uh, had to resign or, or resigned. And, and then for a short time, they were semi rudderless. Reb was very important within that, uh, within that transition uh, because within a year, a year after that, Reb became the, ab became the abbot. So, but, but during that time of, because uh, the, there was a, there was a, the 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 former abbot who had been appointed Richard Baker his name was um, uh, was uh, was was a strong leader uh, but the uh, but the seams showed uh, and then they became then they became apparent mm -hmm. and so there was a split and it was very apparently we were not there of course so it was easy for us but it was hard for, very very hard for a lot of people yeah. because he'd been a he'd been their teacher for <coughs> 12, 13 years. And they believed in him and they lost their belief. So it was, and so they suffered that, yeah. And, 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 but they, they recovered and, uh, uh, and, and Reb was part of that. And also Mel was, and many, many other people, Blanche, and, you know, many, many more. But it was hard for them. But, but let me go back to the main, the main thing is I don't think <coughs> that people necessarily think that much about Suzuki Roshi, they think about their current teacher right now. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, uh, if Jane would talk, speak up right now, I don't think she will, but I'll speak up for her right now. Will. She, okay, no, will she? Don't speak up for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then speak up for yourself. I will speak up for me. <laughs> what I want her to speak up for is she doesn't like deification of Suzuki Roshi. I don't, I don't, I don't think, I mean, it goes against what we were talking about earlier about uh, nothing special about a really good teacher is they're just very ordinary. And that ordinariness is the extraordinary quality because it's very hard not to try to be special in even the tiniest things. So I think finally, when your teacher dies in a group, uh, it's a great loss, you know, and uh, but I remember a picture of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha's death when they had many of his disciples were in agony and many of them, uh, they were all surrounding the body and uh, some of them were in agony and some of them were in joyful looks, had the opposite expression. And the feeling was that for some it was a loss and for others he didn't ever die. He was still present. And so we forget that this lineage that we belong to is a living lineage. It's not something of names only, and it's not something of papers only, it, because those are only very light descriptions 
of what is uh, like an underground powerful stream or river flowing with this uh, this understanding that we learn in Buddhism and we pass person to person. And so it doesn't matter if a person appears to be dead or alive. It, it matters, as Peter said, that you are studying with your individual teacher and you're giving great faith in that situation and you are waiting to, to uh, connect in a way that keeps that river flowing and does not stop the passage of, of ancestors and all the way down from Shakyamuni Buddha to us. And we are all an example of this flowing river and that's what we can never forget even with loss of an individual person, which is more personal loss than it is a teaching loss. That's what I think. Good. All right, so that looks like all the hands that are up right now. Should we offer the closing chant? Uh, yes, let me let me just say, uh, oh, well, I probably should, but let me just say, and you know, we're in, we're in Los Angeles, we're, we're the, uh, we're the uh, South, Southern California uh, outpost for <laughs> San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, at this point, anyway, it may that may change, but that's that's where we are. We're just a small in in a house. Anyway, once the once COVID is over, if you're in LA, come and join us. Come yeah. see us. We're very easy to get to, and we're we're right off the 405 going going south uh, in uh, in the San Fernando Valley. And after a year of nobody at all, it'd be wonderful to see people. Yeah. <laughs> Reb? Um, I also wanted to say that Jeff said uh, when he was at Tassajar, he felt like he was just around Suzuki Roshi. And that was really nice for him. Right, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, And when he said that, I thought, that you know, Jeff built a stone wall at Tassajara around Suzuki Roshi's memorial site. So there's there's Suzuki Roshi's memorial stone and memorial tablet, and then around it is a is a stone retaining wall, which Jeff built very fast, by the way. <laughs> So Jeff, you're still around Suzuki Roshi. Thank you so much. I always think of you when I when I'm there. I always, when I look at at the wall, I always think of you and all of us being around Suzuki Roshi. And yeah, it's it's wonderful to all be around the teacher, the ordinary teacher. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 oh, I, and now, I, now I got my my mute back. And and you and Mel brought the big brought the big stone up. <laughs> and Dan Welch. And Dan Welch. Okay. Thank you. One time, Suzuki Roshi was with Dan <clears throat> on the side creek at Tassajara, and uh, he pointed out to Dan some really big river rocks in that stream. And he said, that rock would make a good memorial stone for somebody. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't know that story. And then later, we, That's yeah. a nice story. We, we pulled that rock out of the stream and dragged it from the stream over to the mountain and 
dragged it up the mountain and put it in place. And then you built a beautiful wall around it. Thank you. Thank you, Peter and Jane. Thank so you much. for inviting us. Yes. Welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.